Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 13, Exodus chapters 15 and 16. Well, at our introduction to the study of uh, Exodus, we divided it up into six parts, simply for the sake of uh, giving us a kind of a structure to help us navigate through all the various stages of Israel's redemption from Egypt, its formation as a nation, the receiving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, so forth. Verse 21 of the chapter we're going to study in Exodus tonight, chapter 15, ends this first part, which... I term the deliverance narrative, deliverance from Egypt. And it begins the next part called In the Wilderness. So let's begin by reading Exodus chapter 15. We're going to read the first 21 verses. Exodus chapter 15, we're going to read from verses 1 through 21. Then Moshe and the people of Israel sang this song to Adonai. I will sing to Adonai, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he threw into the sea. Yah is my strength in my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will glorify him. This is my father's God. I will exalt him. Adonai is a warrior. Adonai is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he hurled into the sea. His elite commanders were drowned in the Sea of Suf. The deep waters covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Adonai, is sublimely powerful. Your right hand, Adonai, shatters the foe. By your great majesty, you bring down your enemies. You send out your wrath to consume them like stubble. With a blast from your nostrils, the waters piled up. The waters stood up like a wall. The depths of the sea became firm ground. The enemy said, I will pursue and overtake. I'll divide the spoil. I'll gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But... You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who was like you, Adonai, among the mighty? Who was like you, sublime in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You reached out with your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your love, you led the people you redeemed. In your strength, you guided them to your holy abode. The people have heard and they tremble. Anguish takes hold of those living in Peleshteth. And the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trepidation seizes the heads of Moab and all those living in Canaan are melted away. Terror and dread fall on them. By the might of your arm, they are still as stone until your people pass over, Adonai. Till the people you purchased pass over. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain, which is your heritage. The place, Adonai, that you made your abode. The sanctuary, Adonai, which your hands established. Adonai will reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and with his cavalry into the sea, but Adonai brought the sea waters back upon them, while the people of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. Also Miriam the prophet, sister of Aharon, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines dancing, as Miriam, Miriam sang to them, Sing to Adonai, for he's highly exalted the horse and its rider he threw into the sea. 
The first 21 verses of chapter 15 are actually a song. Okay, often called the Song of Moses, sometimes called the Song at the Sea. In Hebrew, this is Shirat Hayam. All right, and for liturgical purposes, it's simply known as the Shira, S-H-I-R-A, the Shira. And when I said song, I mean song, exactly as we would think of it. Okay, poetry set to music. In Hebrew, the words of the Song of Moses rhyme. And the the phrases are done in doublets and triplets, characteristic of ancient Hebrew song and poetry structure. Powerful and expressive words like shattered and smashed and shuddered and terrified and consumed and dread and anguish, all these kinds of words are used. Okay. Typical of the highly charged emotions contained within poetry, particularly of military victory songs of that era. Okay. There would have been musical instruments playing as the people sang these words. Now let's keep in mind that what we have here is a song created by men. Okay? That is the exaggerations and prideful expressions and great joy over the death of thousands of Egyptian soldiers that are contained within this song are not necessarily God's thoughts, but rather man's spontaneous response to this great victory at the edge of the sea. Now I tell you this because it's important to recognize that various types of literature exists within the Bible. And because we have to be careful when to acknowledge something as written down concerning God's mind as versus man's mind. Okay. Sometime back I mentioned that we're going to find many instances in Scripture of men not telling the truth. Even ascribing something, a characteristic to God, that's simply not so. I mean, we see David do it on more than one occasion. We see Peter, the Apostle Peter, lie about knowing Jesus, don't we? And there are too many more instances to quote tonight. The point is... What we are often reading in the Bible is simply an accurate account of what happened and what was said. Whether it was flattering to a particular person or not, or to the Israelites or not, or whether it would even please God or not, is not the point. The Bible shows its, its characters, warts and all. The main theme expressed in this song of Exodus 15 is of Israel's tremendous pride at God's, Jehovah's victory over the Egyptians. Jubilation over their escape from Pharaoh and even some rather premature gloating over how the news of this victory must have stunned and worried the Canaanites and the Philistines, all this was included in this song. But there's another important idea expressed in the last section of this song. It is that God created a nation, a theocracy. That is, a nation whose king is God. This is the founding song of the nation of Israel. So while the Song of Moses is man's attempt at recounting all that had just happened concerning their deliverance from Egypt, it cannot carry the same weight as what we have read in previous chapters of Exodus because intermixed with the facts are ancient cultural traditions of just how one creates a victory song after a military victory. 
which is largely the context that the Hebrews viewed what had just transpired, a military victory. Now, we don't have to be alarmed at this. Okay. All of our Christian music has been created the same way. Okay. We express the best way we can through our lyrics and music, our understanding of heavenly things, okay. and our interpretations of what it is we think we see God doing and how we think God wants to be praised and honored using tried and true traditional musical structures and methods of presentation familiar within our culture. That is, all that is happening here with the Song of Moses is really done within the setting of ancient Israelite culture. Now, without going through this song verse by verse, since there's really no new information here, I'd like to point out a couple of things of interest that I think would be useful to help us understand the Hebrews' mindset at this point in history. Note verse 11. Take a look at that. Because a rhetorical question is asked. Who is like you, O Adonai, among the mighty? Now, if you have other versions, your Bibles might say, who is like you, Lord, instead of Adonai, or who, uh, or, or it might even say, in place of the mighty, it might say gods. Substituting a couple of words, it would come out to, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. Okay, and that's pretty accurate. Okay. Um, in, in Hebrew, it literally says, who is like you, Yehovah, among the Elim. Elim, E-L-I-M, means highest or mightiest of all the gods. Gods, plural. Okay. You see, the general way that humans at that time looked at the spiritual world, and Israel was no different, was that not only was it composed of multiple gods, but that these gods were in kind of a celestial um, power structure. Okay? So in their minds, there were lower gods that served the mightier gods, and there were other gods in between. The Hebrew word, Elim, indicates those gods at the top end of the power structure, the executive office, okay, the mightier gods. Now, perhaps it's disturbing to hear that Israel, even after being rescued from Egypt, still thought of Yehovah as just one of many gods. Okay, but think of it like this. Just as baby Christians, new Christians, learn that Jesus is Lord, but don't know much else, so it was with Israel and their understanding of Jehovah. New Christians begin with lots of preconceived notions that they take for granted are true, not realizing that most of what they think they know about God is false. Okay. And so on the one hand, while Israel looked to Jehovah as Israel's only God, on the other hand, they didn't see him as the only God that existed, but as but the highest God among many, the chief God. In this case, a God that was mightier than Egypt's gods. Now, Dr. Robert McGee, good friend of many of us in here, puts it this way. When we first come to God, we're full of deceits that have filled us throughout our lives. Simply accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior does not set us free from these deceptions. In fact, Jesus tells us that it is the truth that will set you free. And as we open ourselves to God, he reveals truth to us. One truth, one step at a time. And each of these truths is given to us in order to destroy in us some of those deceptions that we formerly Believe, but you know, it's a slow, lifelong process. This was Israel's condition. They left Egypt, 
their minds and souls thoroughly corrupted and full of false assumptions that they had acquired there during, during their 400 year stay. At the point of their exodus, in terms of spiritual maturity, they were the equivalent of baby Christians. Now, infant Israel now knew they had a God. They knew his name. And they knew he was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. But they didn't know much more than that. And most of what they thought they knew was either so simplistic as to be nearly meaningless or was outright false. So just as we all do when first coming to the Lord, they viewed Yehovah within the context of their education, their culture, and their life experiences. For them, Yehovah was their God. But other people in other nations had their own gods too. That kind of thinking would lead them throughout their history into idol worship. Okay, which eventually resulted in bringing God's judgment upon them on a number of occasions. Now notice in verses 14 and 15 the mention of Philistia, Helshtim, okay, Edom, Moab, and Canaan. Okay, it says that in this song that these nations trembled and were terrified when they heard what happened to Egypt on account of Israel's God. Was this wishful thinking by the Hebrews? Perhaps boasting and bragging? As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, though news was not instantaneous, of course, then as it is today, people had great interest in what people in other nations were doing. A migration of three million people would have been pretty big news within a few days of their leaving Egypt, and this knowledge would have been communicated very quickly throughout the region. But why would Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan in particular be concerned? Because it was common knowledge by that time that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed, correctly or incorrectly, that the territory those four nations inhabited would someday belong to Israel. And these nations knew that if three million determined folks showed up, along with this god, Yehovah, that had just devastated Egypt and made a mockery out of Egypt's gods, you know what? They just might be able to do it. Now, for the scores and scores, maybe hundreds, of tribal chieftains and kings that lorded over that territory, that would have meant losing their personal wealth and power. For the common folk, it meant either subjugation or expulsion at the hand of Israel. So it is quite likely that those four nations mentioned displayed a very public concern about just where it was that that vast Israelite mob was heading. And these Hebrews, who had been slaves for so long, really enjoyed this now that they were being feared for a change. Now, one final thought, and we'll move on. Interestingly, this song of Moses eventually became a standard part of temple services that occurred on every Sabbath. Okay, In fact, the song of Moses was the closing hymn of every Shabbat service. Okay, um, It was divided into three Stanzas, Exodus 15, 2 through 5, 6 through 10, and 11 through 18. And one of these stanzas was chanted every Shabbat in rotation. Okay. For the Hebrews, the Exodus is not just a distant historical curiosity. It was the establishment of the Israelite nation. It was the ordination of the law. And the singing of this song reminded Israel that they will always be, hear this, the singing of this song reminded Israel that they will always be in the midst of hostile nations. 
Okay, yet Yehovah will also be there to protect them. Just as he delivered from, from Egypt, he will deliver them yet again from the hands of their future enemies. You see, the Hebrews were and still are looking for the same final victory that the church is. In our time, it's really a primary, primarily an issue of whether the Messiah who comes to rescue God's followers has been here once before or he's coming for the first time that separates us. Let's move on and read a little more chapter 15. Let's read 22, chapter 15, verse 22 to the end. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Moses led Israel onward from the Sea of Suf. They went on out into the sure desert. But after traveling three days in the desert, they found no water. They arrived at Marah, but couldn't drink the water there because it was bitter. That's why they called it Marah, bitterness. The people grumbled against Moses and asked, What are we to drink? And Moshe cried to Adonai, and Adonai showed him a certain piece of wood, which, when he threw it into the water, made the water taste good. There Adonai made laws and rules of life for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you will listen intently to the voice of Adonai, your God, do what he considers right, pay attention to his mitzvot, his commands, and observe his laws, I will not afflict you with any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, because I'm Adonai, your healer. They came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Okay, this is where we transition now from that deliverance narrative, that, that is the part where they were rescued from Egypt, to the section concerning now Israel's time, their journey in the wilderness. So let's take just a moment before we examine these final six verses we just read to set the stage for the in the wilderness, if you would, part of the book of Exodus. First of all, it might surprise you to know that many of the details that we wished were contained in Exodus but aren't, are in fact provided in the book of Numbers. And those of you who are studying Numbers with me are starting to see some of those facts come out. Numbers is very connected to Exodus. Now, while I might pick out some things from Numbers to add to our Exodus study, we're going to be studying Numbers in Saturday evening Torah in some depth a few months from now. Now, second, what we're actually witnessing in the book of Exodus is a process. And in the wilderness portion, we learn of Israel's passage from being an enslaved infant to a, free, to a freed and redeemed problem child. Okay. Third, three prominent themes are developed during the wilderness section of Exodus. Challenges in dealing with hostile neighbors, the development of an early form of government for Israel, and this recurring grumbling of the people against God and Moses. Now, what we also become witness to in Israel's time in the wilderness, and hopefully learn from it, is that true, meaningful, lasting transformation usually only occurs in men during a time of personal wilderness experience. Man, I hate that. All right, but it's the truth. That time when whatever we might have described as a normal, familiar, or comfortable existence just ceases for us. Okay? When life is reduced to day by day, if not hour by hour, a state of nearly suspended animation, that's when we learn. Okay. The wilderness experience is one of being betwixt and between. It's not where you came from. 
and it's not where you're going to. Okay, Those of us who have lived long enough have experienced this exact thing. Okay, It's that time that God uses to mature us a notch or two because we become the most tender and the most teachable during that time. So let's begin. Right away, immediately after celebrating in that fabulous song all, all about their miraculous escape across the Red Sea, the Sea of Suf, and the defeat of their former captives, the Egyptians, a life and death situation now suddenly arises for Israel. They've run out of water. It says in verse 1 that Moses caused the Israelites to leave where they were and move on. Okay. Um, if that sounds like an odd way to say that Moses led Israel away from the Red Sea, you're in good company. The, the, the uh, Hebrew sages saw it as strange as well. They generally agree that what's happening here is that the Hebrews were both celebrating and stripping the dead Egyptian soldiers of their valuables, and they were in no hurry to move on before they finished the job. So Moses puts his foot down, and he made them go before they were ready. Verse 22 says they moved into the wilderness of Shur. So let me mention here that what the Bible calls wilderness means desert. Okay, Wilderness is not what surrounds Vail, Colorado. Okay, Shur is thought to mean wall. Now just to make us just, just to make some of these many names of places we have and will encounter in this journey through the wilderness, to make these names seem a little more real to us, understand that much of the time that a particular place they stopped at had no name, or it had a no name that the Israelites were aware of. So the Israelites gave it a name. Their first stop in the last chapter at Sukkot is a good example. It wasn't called Sukkot when they first stopped there. Moses didn't say, hey everybody, we're going to Sukkot. Okay. No, it was a name they gave to the place either during their short stay there or not long after leaving it. So it is probably with Shur and most other names on their route to Canaan. Now next in verse 23, it says they came to Marah, but they couldn't drink the water because it was too bitter. Well, here we encounter the naming issue again, because Marah is Hebrew for bitter. They certainly would not have intentionally gone to a place known for having water too bitter to drink. Right? They only discovered the problem once they arrived, and so they gave it a suitable name. Morah, bitter. Now one can imagine how all this came about. Moses tells the people, take enough water for three days because we're going to stop at this oasis I know about. And there's going to be plenty of water for us there. Okay. The three days pass. They're running out of water and they arrive. And guess what? The water stinks. Right. Tired and hot and thirsty, the Israelites react by grumbling, as it says in verse 24. They blamed Moses. Moses turns around and says to God, well, this is a fine kettle of fish. All right, now what? All right. And Jehovah tells Moses to put a special kind of wood into the water that will remove whatever it is that makes it bitter. Of course, it worked, and now the people and animals can satisfy their thirst. Now, this might be a good time to mention that whatever these various oases and wells, uh, wherever they were located when the Israelites stopped in camp, had to have enormous volumes of water available. Um, meaning there were probably just a handful of water holes 
suitable for Israel's needs. I mean, it's been calculated that to sustain three million people and all the herds and flocks, more than 10 million gallons of water would be needed daily. How much is 10 million gallons? Well, that cocoa water tower, the one with the big flag on it, that's one and a half million gallons. It would take seven of those every day to take care of Israel's needs. Now, I think we can erase any mental picture we may have had of a quaint little water well with a couple of maids dipping a bucketful every now and then out of it with a goatskin bucket or maybe a little desert oasis with a couple of palm trees bent over it, you know, and the little chipmunks scrambling up the tree. Forget it. All right, these were major water sources they went to. All right, in verse 25, we're also told that there, whether there refers specifically to the oasis of Mara or simply a general referral to there being in the wilderness isn't clear, but there God would impose law and judgment, or depending on your version, it might say statute and ordinance, it might say laws and rules, some such variation. Okay? Now, certainly, it was not at Mara where the Torah was given, was it? It was at Mount Sinai. So what's being referred to here is something else. Or perhaps we can look at it that they were given kind of a preamble to the Torah, right at this point. The general rabbinical thought is that kind of a handful of general rules were given to Israel here. But whatever those rules were have been lost for the ages. We have no recorded, uh, recorded uh, history of it. Just this mention that it happened. So let's start to understand some of these legal terms that we're going to run into time and time again, particularly as we get on in to the later chapters of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers. Because these nuances of these legal terms, though important, are typically buried, are completely lost in our English translations. The words translated into laws and rules, or better, laws and judgments, are the Hebrew words hoch and mishpat. Okay? And they're not synonymous words. Hoch means a prescribed task, a rule, in the same sense of what we today might call a law. So hope is a precise legal term in the Bible. And it's most closely associated with what we would today think of as a law or maybe a city ordinance or a city regulation, something like that. Hope is usually associated with the decree of a king or of a government. And it's a decree that must be followed. Conversely now, mishpat is a judicial ruling. It's about a judge looking at a case and making a decision. So if one has thought to have broken the law, then a case is brought before the judge and he rules on it. The decision of the judge, that ruling of the judge, is a mishpat. A mishpat, therefore, is often the result of a hoch being broken. Follow that? So it's hoch and mishpat. It's not just two ways of saying the same thing. Now, so that we can have a better understanding of how Israel was going to operate, let's consider this thought for a moment. In the U.S., we have this overall system of government that's broken down into three branches with approximately equal, though different, powers that in theory 
oversee one another. Okay, the executive, legislative, judicial. The idea being that the legislature, the Congress, makes, defines, and enacts these laws. Okay. This, of course, is completely separate from the judicial branch, our court system, which determines whether or not somebody has broken those laws, and if so, what the consequences should be. And further, in some cases, it determines whether a law that Congress has made is of itself in accordance with our Constitution, our governing principles, and therefore is a just law in the first place. And of course, the executive branch has powers to enact certain rules and regulations regarding trade. It controls the military, handles matters with foreign governments. Now hear me, please. The concept behind the American governmental system, whereby government powers are divided up and somewhat independent of one another, is nothing like the system of government God set up over Israel. So don't confuse them. Okay? Israel's governmental system, which we would call probably a theocracy, a government ruled by God, most closely resembles the operation of our judicial branch. It's as though the judicial branch was our total government. Okay? That is more what Israel's government was like. Next, in verse 25, we see that the governmental system God is imposing on Israel, the system that God is going to give Moses on Mount Sinai, will come in the form of a covenant. But this covenant is going to be totally unlike the covenant that the Moses and the Hebrews had known before. Okay the one given to Abraham. Because that covenant, the one given to Abraham, was unconditional. It was a unilateral promise from the Lord. It was the Lord vowing to do something. God would do all that was required. But here, Jehovah says, if, I-F, if, you will hearken, to my commandments and keep my laws, then he will not put the sicknesses that he put upon Egypt upon his own people. Rather, he will be their healer. If that little word holds such enormous repercussions. Of course, the word if is at the center of the judicial process, isn't it? The entire judicial system is based on a whole series of ifs. Because there's no point to having laws if there's no one to accuse you of breaking them, there's no one to judge the matter, and if there's no one to determine a proper punishment, and then if there's no one to enforce the sentence. The Abrahamic covenant made some 600 years before the time of the Exodus didn't say if. Because that covenant was not a law nor was it a judicial system, nor was it a kind of government imposed on the Hebrew people. The covenant of Abraham was not conditional. It was a statement of fact from God. It was a promise from God of what he was going to do. And as we're going to see later in our study of Torah, the covenant that Jehovah made with Abraham was basically an oath whereby he invoked his own name as the guarantor of the promises he made to Abraham. That's pretty powerful. Okay. On the other hand, the covenant that was soon going to come to Moses on Mount Sinai was a set of rules that said what Israel must do and must not do. And if someone violates those laws, what would happen to them? Let's also realize something else so very important about these covenants of God. Each newer covenant was not a replacement of an older one. Let me say that another way. There were several different covenants from Jehovah, each made for a different purpose. 
Okay? The covenant with Abraham was not declared null and void when God made the covenant with, covenant with Moses, the one that would be made on Mount Sinai. And the covenant with Moses, which is often referred to just in short form as the law, was not declared null and void because of the eventual covenant of Yeshua, what we call the new covenant. They were each for different purposes, they each remain in effect and intact to this day. Now certainly, as each covenant was instituted, it had an effect on how the earlier covenants would manifest themselves. Okay, But if we can just grasp that every one of God's covenants that we read about in the Bible is still valid, none of them replaced or abolished, then we're going to be a lot better able to understand God's word. Now, some of you may be squirming a little bit by what I just said, because it's been consistently implied, if not outright taught, in modern Christianity that when Jesus came, he did away with all the previous covenants of which the law is one. Oh, really? Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5.17. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5.17. I want everybody to see this with their own eyes. Again and again and again. Here we see what Yeshua, Jesus Christ, said himself concerning this very subject. And note... That this is done within the context of what? The Sermon on the Mount. Here's our Savior's very own words concerning what we call the law, others might call the Old Testament. He says this, follow along with me. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah, or your Bible may say come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Some of your Bibles may say complete rather than fulfill. So what does that mean? Well, first it means what it says. Okay. None of God's covenants have ever been voided or replaced. So does that mean we're supposed to be following the 613 commands of the law? Tough question that many of us are wrestling with. About a quarter of those 613 commands are all about the sacrificial system. Well, since Yeshua was the sacrifice that is once for all, then by worshiping him, we are worship obeying those commands by depending on his sacrifice. How about the rest of them? The remaining 75%. Well, think about this. Modern Christians still hold up the first 10 of those 613, those things we call the Ten Commandments, don't we? Yet for some reason, we have given ourselves permission to abolish the Sabbath, which is one of those Ten Commandments, and replace it with what is called the Lord's Day. Some say, no, we didn't abolish the Sabbath, we just changed which day we observe it. In any case, that's another source of controversy. What is difficult for me, though, to find any controversy at all in is what Christ said in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Pretty plain. I didn't come to abolish the law. Right? Yeshua says that the new covenant, which is himself, the covenant we Believers all recognize and depend upon for our salvation did not abolish nor replace the older covenant of Moses. Didn't replace any older covenant. Now hopefully as we work ourselves through Torah, we're going to come to better understand just how all that impacts us. Now it's my intention as we get to the part of Exodus in a few weeks where the Torah, the law, is given on Mount Sinai 
to explain why it is that the law was not abolished at Christ's advent and what exactly it is that the covenant on Mount Sinai was meant to accomplish. And when we've done that, I think Yeshua's words that he came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it are going to become clearer. Well, chapter 15 ends by telling us that the Israelites moved on from Marah, went to Elim, another place no one is quite sure, frankly, of where that is. And there they camped for a time, and the Israelites now, their former life as city dwellers and suburbanites back in Egypt, as laborers and craftsmen, all that is gone. It's over. Now they lived as Bedouins lived. They lived as desert nomads. Let's move on to chapter 16. We're just going to cover a little bit of that tonight. Call it an evening. Open your Bibles to chapter 16 of Exodus. They traveled on from Elim. The whole community of the people of Israel arrived at the Sin Desert between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after leaving the land of Egypt. There in the desert, the whole community of the people of Israel grumbled against Moshe and Aharon. The people of Israel said to them, We wish Adonai had used his own hand to just kill us off in Egypt. There we used to sit around the pots with the meat boiling. We had as much food as we wanted. But you have taken us out into this desert to let the whole assembly starve to death. Adonai said to Moses, Here, I will cause bread to rain down from heaven for you. The people are to go out and gather a day's ration every day. By this I will test whether they will observe my Torah or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they've brought in, it will turn out to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, This evening you will realize that it has been Adonai who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you'll see Adonai's glory, because he has listened to your grumblings against Adonai. What are we that you should grumble against us? Moses added. What I have said will happen when Adonai gives you meat to eat this evening and fill your, give you your fill of bread tomorrow morning. Adonai has listened to your complaints and grumblings against him. What are we? Your grumblings are not against us. They're against Adonai. So, what we can readily see now is that God is going to use Israel's time in the desert wilderness to test them or prove them. This testing, the Hebrew word for testing, what we translate as testing, is nasah. And it's in the judicial sense of meaning you're on trial. You're in a court of law. That is, Jehovah has begun to lay down his rules and laws of government which will culminate soon in the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And with these laws as the basis of Israel's government, God is going to have this ongoing judicial trial, if you would, to see if Israel will hearken to him. By the way, hearken does not mean listen. It means to obey. And at the same time, God is teaching Israel through all this how to live like the redeemed people that they are. The Israelites stayed for about a month at Elim. Remember what Elim means? Gods. They stayed at a place called God's. God had taught them all he intended to from the circumstances at Marah uh, and now Elim. But now it was time that they moved on into the wilderness of Sin. Now notice, 
I pronounced the name of that desert they moved into not as the desert of sin, which is how you'll see it on maps. I, I laugh every time I see that. It's not S-I-N. It's, it's, it's the letter seen. Alright. S-E-E-N. It's seen. Okay. I mean, do not think that somehow, although I can tell you I've heard sermons about it, all right, that somehow or another the name of that area of desert relates to what we in the church think of when we speak of the word sin. That's not even the same word. Okay, in Hebrew, the word simply means thorn. And it's the root word for the word Sinai. In Hebrew, S-I-N-A-I is pronounced Sinai. It means thorny. doesn't mean sin. Okay. When they arrived at the wilderness of Sin, it marked about the two-month point. They are out there seven weeks, eight weeks maybe, Okay, in their journey from Egypt. And of course, the grumbling and the complaining starts once again. And who did they grumble and complain to? Moses and Aaron, their leaders. And it's a repeat of the complaint we've heard before. Things were better for us back in Egypt. So what have you brought us out here for? Just to starve us? Well, when they arrived at the desert wilderness of Sin, it, as I said, it marked about two months. And the grumbling was really starting to settle in. This is becoming a part of their lives, grumbling. But their grumbling was really against God because Moses and Aaron were simply following his instructions. And this is a connection that the people of Israel still hadn't seemed to grasp yet. And of course, since their grumbling is against Jehovah, it is Jehovah that responds. And notice the tone of his response. It's not one of anger or disgust with the people. He's dealing with infants. Okay? Because God is going to teach, God is going to intentionally lead Israel so he can teach Israel. He's going to lead them from one difficulty, one challenge to the next. So he can teach them, but at the same time, they're going to be on trial this whole time. In verse 4, we get another one of those great moments in Bible history that we learn of back in our days of Sunday school. The raining down of manna from heaven. But if we look closely, we're going to see much more to this episode than simply a provision of food supplied by God. There's going to be some law, some instruction laid out here. And in all this as well, God says, I'm going to put you on trial. We'll continue with the story of the manna next time.